respite that I've had off, and I, and I uh, look forward to being with you for the next nine months as we uh, as we continue our study in the Book of Romans. Uh, let me mention just two quick things, Jeff. I can only assume that there's basketball afterwards, men. If you want to stick around and play basketball, um, the gym is open and there's uh, basketball going on. After every Wednesday night study, there is basketball that goes on out there, kind of pick up games, that kind of thing. And then, uh, men, also, you realize that there is a, um, a retreat that is taking place, um, and that will be later on this month, the 22nd and 23rd, I believe. And there's like 25 spots open, and um, uh, you uh, had best claim those if you're interested in going. That's a Friday night and Saturday, and then we're back um, by early afternoon on Saturday. So that's a men's retreat, and the theme is men at work. And um, surely uh, work is not a difficulty or a place of temptation for us, is it? Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 3, and um, I'd like to say that we're going to make enormous, great strides in progress in our study of the book of Romans tonight, um, beginning in chapter 3, but we're not. Uh, what we are going to do is, what, I, what I'm going to seek to do tonight is uh, cover, in about 30 minutes, um, what we covered in uh, nine months in uh, last fall and last winter and spring. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, you know, if you're like me, uh, you can't remember um, what you had for lunch this afternoon, much less what we talked about last fall. So what I, what I thought was uh, appropriate and necessary to do is just kind of start and get us all, uh, uh, you know, rolling together uh, as we rehearse just a bit of, it's got to be just a bit of, as you can well imagine, because we, we, I'm going to try to cover uh, chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 through verse 20 tonight. And that's what we did all of those two semesters. But I, I, I wanted you to remember so that we just didn't dive helplessly back into the, uh, the book of Romans, not remembering anything about what we had discussed in those months. So that's what we're doing. One of the, one of the stories that I love to tell every time... We start a semester, um, and, and maybe I, I should give up telling this story because I've told it so often, but it does, uh, again, state um, what, we, what, we're, what we're here to do as we study this book. Guys, um, we're, we're convinced that, the, the, uh, that, that spiritual life is found not in the preaching of this book but in the words of this book. Now, my, my point, I, I don't know that that's a proper distinction, but what I'm trying to say is, it has nothing to do with my delivery. The power is in the words, the words of this book. The thing that changes, and make, the thing that changes us and makes us new is not my little ditties. It's this book. And, and we seek uh, very uh, passionately to explain it correctly. But understand this much, that the, the life is in the book. It is not in uh, the deliverer or the, or the preacher of the book. So, uh, and then one other thing, our, our high esteem for this book is, I think, well illustrated in a story that I, that I told, as I said so many times. It's about the, uh, the recruits that go to uh, uh, the Marine boot camp and 
and they're uh, they're worked over for months uh, in this boot camp, and then. They come to the graduation day, and it's the final day of their exposure to uh, marine life. And um, uh, the graduation exercise consists of one, um, one more accomplishment. And the accomplishment is this, that the, uh, the drill instructor, who is a big, rough, tough guy, stands in front of the, these recruits that are not raw recruits anymore. They've been trained, you know. And, and they know how to shine their shoes now and, and march in formation. And, and they, uh, they're told, you see that minefield out there, gentlemen? And they say, well, sure, Sergeant, we've seen that. We've been across that, you know, a dozen times through, through boot camp. He says, well, here's the final assignment for you to graduate. We want you to cross that minefield. And they look at each other and they think, well, <laughs> we've done that several times. That was no big deal. He said that there's only one difference, gentlemen. The difference this time is that those mines that used to go pop and were firecrackers in training are now live mines. They're, they're the real thing, and they'll blow you to smithereens. Now, I don't know about you, but I would uh, have a few questions after hearing that and would want to uh, ask, uh, well, uh, sir, could you, <laughs> could you tell us uh, where the uh, live ones are? And the uh, drill sergeant looks back and says, no, uh, private, that's a part of the fun. Get on with it. Now, all of that to say this, um, we're convinced that the book that we study together provides for us a route through the minefield. That um, you and I live in a, in a culture that will indeed, you know, just take the, the one issue of internet porn. Will that, will, that, will, that, uh, will that harm us, you think? There's all kinds of minefields out there that are ready to blow us to smithereens. And what this book gives us, it helps us steer safely through the minefields. It is a route through the minefield. Now, that's what we believe this book to be. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. And my task, and a sacred one it is, my task is to faithfully and accurately deliver this book to you such that you can hear it and understand it and hopefully apply it. So that's my task, and, um, and hopefully we'll all walk out of here with a greater understanding of who God is and what he's like. The book of Romans uh, is unparalleled in its importance in the church, in the history of the Christian church. Very few books have had the kind of impact on, on uh, uh, the leading spokesman of the church like Romans has. For instance, I think you know that, that it was a passage out of Romans 13 that spoke to uh, St. Augustine, who was considered the greatest apology and the greatest theological mind that the church ever produced. But it was a passage out of Romans that grabbed hold of him and shook him and brought him to his knees. You might remember also that it was a, a passage out of Romans that spoke to Luther and set him free from bondage from a life of uh, obedience and law works. And it was, of course, in the first chapter, uh, verse 17, where, where we find Paul saying, the just shall live by faith. I told you that story before. I won't bore, bore you with it again. But it was in Romans 1 that uh, Luther found deliverance and, and rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith, which had so long been lost. Uh, Bunyan, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, a book that I'm studying in our grace group. But uh, John Bunyan, it was also this book that had been so powerfully useful in his life. 
And then, of course, Wesley um, came to an understanding of the gospel, or at least stimulated in that direction, through a reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans. So these, these, these stellar uh, examples and leaders in the Christian faith, Augustine, Luther, Bunyan, Wesley, were all moved and brought to um, a, a new understanding of things through this book, the book of Romans. Rarely is a book, uh, has a book been so used like the book of Romans has been used. Now, the theme of the book of Romans is the thing that we're, we're right on the cusp of getting a chance to study. In fact, I think we'll get to it next week. But the theme, of course, is the doctrine of justification by faith. The, the doctrine which announces that God, on the basis of something that Christ has done, is willing to freely forgive, forgive sinners such as, as me and you. That is, that's a thumbnail sketch. We're going to get more than that in the, in the coming days. But um, that's what this book is about. But um, Paul saw fit to introduce that doctrine with two and a half chapters. <laughs> chapter 1, chapter 2, and first 20 verses of chapter 3 are what Paul saw as necessary to prepare us to rightly handle and understand and grasp and enjoy the doctrine of justification by faith. And it is this theme contained in this gospel that Paul is not ashamed of. He says that in, one, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of this gospel. In no way does this gospel give, bring me shame. Why? Because in it I find the power of God demonstrated and proclaimed. And, and he's so eager to convey this gospel. But he goes on to say in chapter 1, what, why is a salvation necessary at all? And then he mentions in verse 18 that because, I'll tell you why it's necessary, because the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's why this gospel is so needed and so, so valuable to Paul and to us. And that's the theme, that is 118, is the theme that Paul works out from that point on to the end of chapter 1, through chapter 2, and through to, over to verse 20 of chapter 3. And, and that theme is that all men, that Jews and Gentiles, are under the wrath of God. You'll notice, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, not just Gentile ungodliness, but Jewish ungodliness as well. As well. Because man's primary problem is not with other men. His primary problem is with God. You know, um, um, one of my heroes, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, tells a story uh, in his commentary on Romans about a, a religious conference that was being held several years ago in Glasgow, Scotland, and was, which is often the case in such uh, of these religious conferences, a, a leading a political figure was asked, in fact, the mayor of the city of Glasgow was asked to appear before this religious conference and, and give some greeting, some words of greeting and some words of opening uh, uh, testimony, or at least opening greeting. 
And so this mayor of Glasgow got up and he said this, and I'm about to quote. He said, Now all you men are very learned theologians. I am not. I am just a plain man. I am a man of affairs, and I do not understand your theology and all these things. Indeed, I am not interested in your theology. And I believe you people are wasting a lot of your time over theology. What I want to know is this. How can I love my neighbor? That is what we want to know from you. We are not interested in your great theology. I want to know, and the common man wants to know, how can I love my neighbor? Now, ladies and gentlemen, that man has just voiced an ignorance an ignorance of what indeed is his primary need. His primary need is not to love his neighbor. His primary problem is not in his society. His primary problem is in his relationship to God. And it's this that, that men have missed, they continue to miss, and that's why Paul is so eager to work out point by point, line by line, precept by precept, this great gospel that he's not ashamed of. And so he takes uh, a great deal of time to work it out. Now, what I, what I want us to do is, is to now flip over to verses 19 and 20 um, of chapter 3, because that really is the final two statements. And we'll, um, we'll summarize things as we go. But let me read those two verses, because this is, these are two verses that transition us into Paul dealing and beginning to unfold this great doctrine of justification by faith. And he does it with genius. He does it with intricacy. But he does it with unbelievable spiritual clarity. But uh, in, before he gets to that, these are the last two things that he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul, in those two verses, says, Now we know something. There's no more need in arguing about this. We know this, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. What, what does Paul have in mind when he uses the term law? There's a couple of possibilities. He could have in mind the five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Or he could have in mind the whole of the Old Testament. And I, and I think he has in mind the whole of the Old Testament. He has drawn from the whole of the Old Testament, not just the, the Torah in, in chapters 1 and 2. But he is saying um, what the law has to say is to those who are under the law, and here's what that law says, or here's the purpose of what that law has to say. That is, the purpose of what the law has to say is this, two things. Number one, that every mouth may be stopped. Um, I love that image. Maybe it's because I've got such a big mouth. But I love the image of that every mouth may be stopped. One of the purposes of the law contained in this old, whole Old Testament is so that men would finally come to the place where they shut up. Now, again, forgive me, parents, if I have used a term that you're not permitting in your home. It is a very ugly term, I understand. But, 
what, what the text is saying is that the law should finally bring us to the place where we have nothing else to say, where we have no other excuses, that we have no other uh, pleas that we want to make in our, on our behalf. Uh, we're not ready to say, yeah, yeah, but. No. The law has spoken to us ultimately and finally such that we come to the place where we say, i got nothing else to say. We put our hands over our mouths. That's what the law should do to us, ladies and gentlemen. You know, there are a couple of interesting stories in the New Testament. and I, In fact, I'd like for you to take a brief look at one. Look with me just real quickly at Luke chapter 18. I'm only going to read one verse, but it's such a pregnant verse. This is the story, of course, of um, the parable that Jesus tells about the publican and the Pharisee. And uh, I think you know the parable, but I just want to ask you to focus on the first verse of it. Listen to this. Verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable, as Jesus spoke, to the, spoke this parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus is speaking of parable to a group of people that he identifies as people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Here's a group of people that, to whom Jesus is speaking who have never had their mouths shut. They are a people who want to say, the reason that I'm uh, uh, spiritually okay is because of this, 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 and this. The law has never accomplished its purpose. The law has never brought them to the place where they say, i got nothing else to say. And if, and if, I, there's, any, if there's going to be any hope for me, it's going to have to come in some other way because the law has convinced me that I have nothing I should be saying. Nothing. There's one other story that the rich young ruler that I think you know about in, in Jesus' dialogues with the rich young ruler, as you know, and, and um, the rich young ruler says, you know, uh, well, what must I do to, how can I get to heaven in essence? And Jesus says, well, you know what the, what the Bible says. You know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he said, well, I've kept all of that since my youth up. And then Jesus goes on and says, well, what about this? And what about this? And the man had nothing else to say. But the tragedy of that story is he walks away. You know, that's what the law, what, what Jesus did to the rich young ruler is what the law is supposed to do to us. Bring us to the place where I've got nothing else to say. Has your mouth ever been shut? Or are you still saying something like, well, um, uh, I, 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 I understand all that, but, you know, I knew the purpose of the law is spoken to those under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Um, have you been silenced in the presence of God? Have you, have you realized that there's really nothing you can plead? Well, or are you given to some kind of self-justification? And that's the, that's the, pop, the, uh, the problem that Paul is addressing in these first two chapters to a group of people who had never shut up. 
in the presence of God. He goes on to say um, uh, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You know, um, I don't need to spend much time on that, but simply to say that um, that, that is what, this is a summary comment. What I'm trying to point out is, this is a summary comment of an argument that he began in 118. You see, in 118 he says, uh, I want to tell you why this gospel is so important to me and why it's so necessary. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all righteous, unrighteousness. And then he sets out to convince his audience, which is primarily a Jewish audience, that they're included in 118. And then he comes as he closes off this section of his argument and he says, the law was written so that you would shut up and that all the world may become guilty before God. Yes, my Jewish friend, you too. And this was such a, a hard pill for them to swallow. They, you know, they, they, he spends chapter 2 addressing some of the things that were really difficult. He's about the oracles of God, he says in 3.1. And, and, and then he talks about circumcision. Well, you know, we got the oracles of God. Well, you know, I'm sorry, I want that work. Well, well, we don't have the oracles of God. How about this? We got circumcision. We certainly got circumcision. And then he talks about how circumcision won't work. Because he's trying to convince them of their need and why this gospel is so glorious. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you have been impressed with the gospel. We have a rich gospel. And Paul is impressed, but he sees that before we get to that, you've got to understand one thing. That the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and godless men. And the thing that was given to help that or to produce that is, of course, the law. Um, you know, guys, I, I, I'm afraid at times that our evangelism is somewhat off-center. I think it starts in the wrong place because our evangelism really shouldn't start with Christ. Our evangelism has got to start with God. And that man has got to be under has got to understand that this God, we are not rightly related to this God um, because of our sin. Um, you know, guys, this is a um, I always draw back when when I'm discussing this because it's probably just as unpopular to me as it is to the world, but gang, there is no meaning whatsoever to evangelism apart from a knowledge of the wrath of God. If there is none of this 118, there is no need for a gospel. And, and that is a doctrine that is so utterly repugnant to modern man. He doesn't want to be held accountable for anything that he does. He doesn't like this idea that he's ultimately going to give an account that all the world is rendered guilty before God. He doesn't want to hear that. And, and I want to suggest that 
that man-to-man relationships are so awful today because he doesn't even want to give an account to men for his behaviors. He doesn't want to have anybody question his decisions, his choices, his acts, his behavior. But the very idea that there is a God who is going to do that to him, and that is something that he rails at. But I'm saying to you, I've got nothing to say to him unless he's first convinced that there is a wrath of God, that God is wrathful towards all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And he's got to be convinced so that he finally shuts up. And once he does, boy, then, then we got something to tell him. Which we're going to look at next week, but, and actually we're going to look at it for a long time. But then we, if, if he's still talking, then we, we got nothing to tell him. You know, guys, um, surely, surely when we when we wrestle with the wrath of God, we, we're, we're not, surely we don't have in our minds some kind of uncontrollable emotion, uh, some kind of arbitrary anger on the part of God. But what God does have is an utter detestation of sin, an inflexible hatred of sin. And, and that was what the law was intended to do, is simply convince them. Convince all of us that God was a certain character and we didn't match that. And then finally produce that kind of, I'm not, I don't have anything to say in my defense. And then they're ready to hear about this gospel that Paul is not ashamed of. And then um, we got some good news. But apart from that, ladies and gentlemen, you see, one of the things that I hope you'll get is, do you see what Paul is doing through chapter 1, chapter 2, and 20 verses of chapter 3 before he ever tells anybody about this great gospel? I mean, he said, I'm not ashamed of it. But before he's going to explain it, he sees that it's necessary to make sure that everybody understands something first. And that something that they've got to understand is that they abide. Of course, outside of Christ, they abide under the wrath of God. And then he, see, and, and I want to ask you this, is that how our evangelism goes? It, or, or are we hastening to... To get to the goodies. I, I know last uh, winter and spring, I got, maybe you got tired too, but I got tired of coming in here and saying the same thing over again. Well, okay, it's not arguing at Paul. So he wants to convince the Jews. It was argument after argument after argument, the same argument trying to convince Jews that they're included. But Paul didn't think like that. That is, he thought, I'm going to have to wrestle this thing out, eliminate all objections, so that then I have a, I have a listening ear to the good news that I'm about to proclaim. Uh, the one which describes the power of God. Um, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. You know, you see it in the Old Testament. You see it in, Moses, in the garden when uh, Adam is kicked out. You see it um, when Moses was not allowed to enter Canaan. You see it in the New Testament. 
And, and I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the explanation of much of what we see in the 20th century today is God beginning to turn men over to a reprobate mind. I was in a, a pizza cafe one night uh, eating by myself because my wife was sick and my daughter was not there. And so uh, my wife said, you know, you go get you something to eat. And uh, so I ran out to um, pizza cafe. I, I like pizza cafe. And um, I don't know if you've ever been in the pizza cafe, but they have televisions, uh, four of them, located all over the There's one over here, one over here, one over here, one over here. And they sometimes have, and I've, I've fought with these people over their televisions before, over South Park. Uh, I'd go in there and they'd have South Park turned up, and I, you know, I, I didn't want to watch South Park. Well, I was sitting at a little table for two by myself. It's got like rather pitiful um, uh, by my little lonesome. I'm, I'm kind of pitiful outside of Susie Young, I'm here to tell you. Uh, uh, oh, just pray she doesn't leave me. Um, <laughs> she's thought about it several times. <laughs> That's just a joke. That, uh, have you heard Jimmy's wife has thought about leaving him? <laughs> um, that's not true. <laughs> we've, we've made it through 30 years. But anyway, I'm sitting there, and, um, and I, guys, I'm just about, I, I, wonder of wonders, I don't even watch much Tennessee football anymore. Um, I, you know, I've had these sleeping problems all summer, and, uh, and last Saturday night, the Vols had the audacity to play on Sunday, on Saturday night, and I can't watch at a night because I'll be so upset I won't sleep at all, and here I'm going to be a mess to come in here. To, I didn't watch. That's not true. I watched the first half. Uh, but um, I, I couldn't take it anymore. But anyway, I don't watch much television. I, I, I certainly don't watch channels above 24. That's ESPN. But um, when y'all didn't know that. But you get up into the 32s and the 34s and the 36s and the 38s, and you're in trouble. Well, I don't get up there. Um, I'm never into the, I'm not into that. Well, I was sitting there at the pizza cafe, um, minding my own little business, business not bar and so, just eating my chef salad. And on the television that's right there, I mean, I, I can't avoid looking at it, is a, is a show, and I did not know it was on. And, and, um, B.J. knew it was on, because B.J. is, he's young. <laughs> there is a show on, did you know this, in t called Strip Poker? Have you seen it? And they have these two voluptuous blondes, and these two hunks of men. And they're playing, they're, it's comes some kind of card deal, and you have to guess something, and then if you lose, you've got to take off an article of clothing. And they must practice for months getting these women or teaching them and training them how it is that they're supposed to take off that article of clothing. I have never seen such gyrating and pulsating in all of my life just to get their wristwatch off. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, and, and finally, I got up and moved to the other side of the table because I, I couldn't watch anymore. My, all of that to say, ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that one of the illustrations of the wrath of God is that he's turning this culture over to a reprobate mind. And, I, I, you know, I'm sure people long before me have thought that Jesus couldn't stay away much longer. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I, at staff meeting yesterday, I, I won't bore you with much more of these details, but Richard Hall was sharing something about something he saw, and, and it was about, uh, it was entitled, what was it entitled, Real Life or Real World? 
and it was some college students in New Orleans. It makes you want to remain ignorant. I mean, I forget the college education. You don't need it. But, gang, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all righteousness of men. Has that shut your mouth? Has it convinced you that there must be another way? Um, I told you um, chapter 2 is devoted to Paul's convincing Jews that they were included. Um, and then chapter 3, he addresses some of the questions that were of uh, particular application to a Jewish mind. Uh, it begins, what advantage? Um, and then in verses 19 and 20, here we, we're, we're trying to wrap this up. In verses 19 and 20, they serve as an intro and a summary, a summary of what he has done in chapters 1 and 2 in the first 20 verses. And um, so that he can get on with this proclamation of this gospel that brings him such joy. And he uh, wraps it all up in making sure you understand, or making sure that his audience is speechless. And then, ladies and gentlemen, two of the most glorious words in the New Testament, a conjunction and an adverb. But now, are you ready for that, ladies and gentlemen? You see, he has worked us through all the way to this point so he can look at us and say, start looking at that next week. Let's go. Uh, Father, I do pray that you will whet the appetites of your people, that they might find great thrill in um, being able to come and, and digest more fully, uh, with more clarity, this great gospel that we... Uh, that we have come to love. But Father, uh, perhaps we don't love it enough in this room. Perhaps this gospel has become old hat to us. Perhaps this gospel has become boring to us. Might it never be so. Might we who have had our mouths stopped in this room Come to glory in that gospel that announces that God, on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done, is willing to forgive sinners as wicked as I am. We glory in that gospel. And we do so in Jesus' name and pray in that name as well. Amen. Thank you and good night and hope to see you next week.